Welcome to A Writer in Italy, the podcast. I am your host, Michelle Johnston, and this is a little share in the world of travel, books, art, and lifestyle. I live in Australia, yet have long had an attraction to the Mediterranean countries for as long as I can remember. This inspiration has fueled my creative life and given me incredible joy over the years as an artist and a writer. And that is why I have created these shares on journeys that have been made, books that I have loved, and cooking adventures inspired by wonderful food writers. You can find all show notes at michellejohnston.life and follow me on Instagram at a writer in Italy where you can find all of the meanderings and indeed the lure of Italy as the ultimate muse. Thank you for joining me. I love having you here for the journey of Muse Italia. Welcome to podcast 52. This offering this week is a little travel diary moment and share of my last few days in Italy. And I thought it would be really nice to reflect on the adventure. So I opened up my travel journal and read this detail and I figured let's just start there. It's a diary entry at the beginning and then I basically look back on one of my last days in Italy. So enjoy. 9.42, 12th of April. Five men, business suits. Suave. Another group of men turn up, out on the sidewalk. The barista carries a tray with small cups of espresso on colourful sauces. About eight cups on a tray. I am impressed. Each downs the shot, fast, without blinking. They talk for a minute or two, then they leave. The barista walks back in and puts his arm around his wife, surveys the cafe. With the other hand, he is holding his own espresso. He lifts his free hand and pinches her on the ear. She smiles. The daughter brings me my cappuccino, a frothy number, and a cornetto filled with pistachio cream. The cornetto is bright green and tastes unlike anything else I have tried before. I remember yesterday how this couple were fighting and yelling at each other. Now it is all calm. Love, ambience, sincerity. It kind of reminds me of someone. Me, oh yeah, a good dose of fire in my nerve endings. Always telling Rich what works and what does not, or that I am off to Italy, alone. He might still be digesting that, even though it's now three weeks later. But that is another story, perhaps I'd tell that one another time. And so I book the train journey and get myself to the Milano Centrale. I reflect on this in the previous episode on the Italo service, one hour from Milan to Turin. It is something you can do in a day. The Italo service is fast, comfortable, and yes, the Wi-Fi works too. In the train, I sit back and watch the fields of green. It's a pretty landscape and eventually I can see snowy peaks in the distance. Turin at the foothill of the Alps is a destination known to skiers and those who revel in outdoor winter sports. For those who prefer the indoors, the city is known for its regal historic cafes, 
its long arcaded streets and its open piazzas. If you are lucky to have a car, you can visit picturesque villages and vineyards that celebrate the local Nebbiolo grape and savour a bottle of Barolo or Barbaresco. In the region, slow food dominates, the cuisine that marries the many layers of the past. Think French and Swiss neighbours not far away. And the fact that geographically, they are linked by borders and regions and no doubt influences over the many years that have passed. In Turin, the temptation of not only world-class wines, but chocolate, hazelnuts and white truffles. Gastronomically speaking, Turin is on the food trail for those in the know. In the train, I am mellow and happy as I listen to the narrator on audio. The book is See You in the Piazza by Francis Mays. I start to feel this elated sense of joy as I listen and wonder about Torino. I have not visited this city before. I wonder what the day will bring and feel happy elation of the synchronicity of a travel book and a travel moment. How these two things can come together if they want to. This whole trip has been like that, where I have really taken another step, not just travelling, but really thinking about the food the culture and the books that I have read before. On my other journeys, I have just been in the moment, which is great. But this time, I am circling back and forward, not every day, but like this day, where I am thinking about the possibilities and what I have taken notes on before. This sense of possibility makes the whole thing feel quite heightened, if a little magical. I have chosen this. I rolled the dice in a way. Always I am curious, but this is saying a holy yes to myself. This is claiming it for once. In Italy, on a train journey alone, looking out to the countryside and heading to Turin, I encounter happiness, a fleeting and safe assurance that I am in the right place, that I have made the right decision. At 11.36, I walk out of the Porta Nuova, the station, with the idea of the Café El Bicharin on my mind. Of course, I should have really looked at a real map to make sense of the city. But remember, this decision was spontaneous to come, so it's a one-step-at-a-time travel adventure. Exiting the station, I realise I'm already walking the wrong way, and I turn back to go in the opposite direction. Eventually, I am wandering and I realise how quiet and peaceful and clean this place is, and that the architectural marvels of the city are already presenting themselves. Arched walkways over streets, a little like Paris, only three or four storeys for buildings, decorative flourishes, iron balconies, cream and pale yellow facades. The Baroque and the tree-lined streets are a happy union. The tram stops close by and I keep on walking, checking on my phone every now and then for direction. I make my way onto the Corso Riamberto and realise I still have quite a solid walk. Wandering via Piazza Solferino and the joyous fountain, I see the two main figures pouring forth their water from wineskins. A good sign, I think to myself. La Fontana is a gentle spot for the visitor to sit in a chair and watch the trees or rest a little while. I continue on hopeful to find the cafe with the hot chocolate that symbolises the beautiful layers of this city. 
Eventually I find my way into the Café La Bitrin and am delighted to see a relaxed and peaceful mood in the Piazza della Consolata. Tables are outside with pale brown umbrellas. There are many couples and a few idle reading the newspaper. I cannot resist sitting inside. My 40-minute walk has me needing a velvet lounge and a marble table kind of moment. Inside each table is ordained with a small silver candelabra and a white candle that melts generously. I glaze at the menu, but really I would just like to try the classic and perhaps I dare say cult drink of the city. When she walks out the back to pour my hot drink, I look at the small wood panelled historic cafe. Soon I have placed in front of me a wine glass on a white saucer. The glass is filled with hot chocolate, espresso and a layer of cream. Bitcherin translates to a little glass. As I stare at the glorious drink, I was told in no uncertain terms, no mix, just drink. And so I obey. The thing is, after the long walk and the train journey, I am ready for something. I am parched and left wanting. When I sip the drink at first, it's the cold fior di latte, the cream I taste, but then hot, hot chocolate that slides down my throat like an elixir of sorts. A silky, smooth drink that has the right amount of sweetness and it's really hot. I am so relieved to have a real hot drink, I continue to slowly sip it until it is simply gone. I write in my journal, quote, No mix, just drink, 12.25pm. In Turin, you can sample this drink all over the city. But at Labitrin, where the candles continue to burn almost 260 years later, the flavours are distilled to this particular recipe. The decadent drink has me musing over the page and wondering about the city, Turin. It feels old world, old Europe. This drink has been celebrated by many, Puccini, Picasso, Nietzsche, Dumas and Hemingway and even Camillo Cavour back in his day. A long time ago I wrote down a list of the historic cafes of Turin, the capital city of Piemonte. That slim book is with me on this journey, but back in my bag at Milano. I realised that I have filled it up with words a few weeks before, and that the idea of the cafes is not here now. Those moments and the possible journeys were all expressed weeks earlier. So I have to look on my phone to Google, what else? And I recognise many. I see Cafe San Carlo, Baratti in Milano, Cafe Torino. The list goes on. And at 12.51, I realise there is no way of stepping into each of these doors. On this day, at least. The list is way too long and the day is way too short. Marble tables and long afternoons sipping more venerable Turinese drinks and beverages and staring at gilded decorative ceilings and chandeliers may not exactly transpire. I think a writer would be happy in this city, protected from the alpine breezes that would permeate the city at times, and you would frequent these cafes with a fine nibbed pen, a leather journal and a list of ideas to ponder. 
That third place that Oldenburg coined back in the late 1990s is standard practice in Italy. And cultivated hundreds of years ago when the first cafe walls were erected, whether it was the Austrians, the Venetians, the French who owned the land at the time, this European specialty is formalised, where the men working the floor have bow ties, clean starched jackets and a ready smile. It is a civilised and respected part of the culture, and one I deeply admire. In my younger years, as a 19-year-old, a 20-year-old, I often frequented a cafe for a hot chocolate or a cappuccino. With only $5 to spare in my pocket, I could write in my journal for an hour or clock over some morning pages, Julia Cameron style. I was always on the lookout for a new cafe near where I lived, usually near the train station, since public transportation and I were quite firm friends. And I wasn't ready to quite go home either. I would spend many a spare minute at a wooden table with a pen tapping on the white page. The third place Oldenburg suggested was either the local cafe, the church, basically at a meeting point, where you could be with people or not. You could sit down in the corner and observe. The first place is obviously your home, and the second place is your work. Oldenburg coined this, that we need a third place. When I think of Hemingway sitting in the old cafes of Paris with a sharp pencil and a notebook, and a café au lait, I feel a little reminiscent of a life I never had. Two hours later, lost in his writing, he would stop and order a plate of oysters and a half carafe of white table wine. That crispness he described in his posthumous book, A Movable Feast, could only be penned within the walls of a warm and welcoming cafe. Cafes are safe harbours, where you rest and revive your energies before moving out into the world to face the beautiful and the mundane. I often associate Hemingway with Parisian cafes, but Italy was tremendously influential to him too. His time on the Austrian front and recovering his war-torn body in Italy laid the foundation for many books. Farewell to Arms, Across the River and Into the Trees. And many have quoted his time in Torcello in the Venetian Lagoon. Hemingway once said, quote, I loved northern Italy like a fool, end of quote. I know how he feels. After my taste of heaven in a glass, I wander next door to admire the chocolates. On the walls are shelves of chocolate bars, chocolate balls, fondant, and beautifully wrapped Easter eggs. Easter is very close and it's been wonderful admiring the many window displays. I adore the antique tin collection that captures old Europe and I wonder if I should buy chocolates for the girls and then I cannot decide which one and wander back out into the Piazza Consolata. I walk across the street to admire the frescoes by Giovanni Battista Crossato in the Santuario della Consolata, a small basilica with quite stunning pink marble and rococo decoration. There are frames of gold-edged frescoes, and this makes the church feel extremely regal and, dare I say, wealthy. The altar sings with the Madonna and her baby with golden spears and angels hovering. Of course they are golden too. It's a surprise to see the detail. And then I wander back outside to a blue sky and an extremely quiet street. Turin is all calm and simplicity. I decide to walk on towards Piazza San Carlo, hoping to see more. I find myself stopping to photograph street corners and restaurants. 
and cobbled streets on Via Mercanti in the corner of Via Giuseppe Barbaru. I am photographing the boar's head and the font signs at the window when I have a good look in the restaurant to see the place is really quite busy. All Italians definitely know tourists. Well, except me. I decide to go in and find myself waiting for a while for a table. Eventually, in a rush, a young girl sits me down in a cosy corner with three seats. I am most pleased as it offers a full view of the restaurant. It is all red and white Czech tablecloths, red and white striped upholstery on the wooden seats, paintings, gold mirrors and wines on shelves. It has a great ambience. Although one thing, the menu is all in Italian and I figure I will work it out. But the next thing, another rushed waitress hovers over me, barks something at me and lifts my menu. I say non palo italiano and she says in slow and loud English, get up and sit here. I am kind of a little shocked, but obey. It's like it's my fault I sat at this table, although that wasn't my decision. I am then seated in an awkward corner at a small table. This is the downside to eating alone. Often you get the crap table near a doorway or the toilet or whatever. Now two things float through my mind. One, that that was a bit rude. And two, this is the second time I've been commanded for what to do this day. No mix, just drink, and now get up and sit here. I ignore her rubbish hospitality and make myself comfortable next to the stairwell. If only I walked outside, however, I am most curious about the menu and spend quite a bit of time studying it. I choose the Barbaroo Insulata, a salad with radicchio, tuna, egg, iceberg, pomodorini, and olive. And for a follow-up course, I order costoletti di agnola al forno competiti corioffi. The only thing I recognize on this list is forno and potato, so I know it shall be interesting. I ask for frizzante water and a glass of vino rosso. The waitress is still very rushed and rather unpleasant. I ignore that and write the details in my journal. Even though the salad is not artistic by any means, it is fresh and it has been ages over this whole journey that I have eaten a fresh, humble salad. The wine does not turn up and the next dish is plonked down in front of me. I have a slow-cooked meat on a bone, a kind of stewy-looking dish. Interesting. It's okay, just very rustic. I wonder why this place is so packed when I realise I think it is because it is so damn cheap and has a nice atmosphere inside. After my two dishes, I wonder if I should risk ordering the bonnet. This is likely my only chance, since I already know I will head back to Milano before dinner. So I go ahead and order the dessert, even though I am rather content with all I have eaten. I have made the dish a number of times at home, surprising dinner guests with this light creme caramel style dessert, that is traditional Piedmontese cuisine. I love the amaretti and chocolate combination. It can be wonderful dessert and it is sweet but light and a great way to end a meal. And lastly, it is easy to make ahead of time or the day before. And so I surrender and order the dessert when the rushed waitress is surprised that I ask for another serve of food. In truth, it's likely not a great idea considering the track record so far, but I am willing to try. So 
a deep chocolate dessert turns up with creme on top and a decorative detail. I still cannot decide what exactly it is. In fact, I think it is a cherry. And so I taste the dessert and discover a bonnet that is deeply chocolatey and sweet and doesn't have that amaretti flavour nor the egg-like consistency I know it to be at home. It is like a slice of chocolate pudding. In this case, two spoonfuls would be satisfying enough. But I ordered it and that is that. I am slightly disappointed, but it's no real big deal. In the meantime, a local who is sipping his red wine and eating his lunch across the way has made some conversation with me. Discovering I am from Australia, he and I across the restaurant begin a back and forwards kind of chat. Since it's a bit hard to talk over the conversations in the restaurant, he brings his red wine over and sits at the table. He tells me he has lived in Australia, in Darwin. When I talk to him, I find myself thinking his English is quite an American-style inflection, like an old movie star, and I like it. In fact, my new friend has this movie star look to him too. Likely he's in his late 50s and very friendly and quite a giggle. He says he lived up in Darwin in Australia, and he told me he couldn't understand the Aussies. G'day, mate. How are you, mate? He leans over to me and says, What's a mate? He was utterly confused at this at first. The Australians and the New Zealanders he found quite hard to understand. But you, he says to me, I can understand you. I laugh and I think that's because I know I talk way too fast. So I really make an effort to slow it down in this case. And once when I was in Paris, I sat at the Brasserie Lip, funny enough, where writers like Hemingway in Picasso and Dora Maar frequented once upon a time. I went there to visit. It was definitely a little pilgrimage. It was about 5pm in the afternoon and I had walked all over the Marais district over to the Brasserie Lip and past some of the many other famous cafes on the street. It was an art day I had to myself on the trip I did with my mum about three years ago. So I sat down and the waiter's shoulders kind of heaved. They were like, oh, another tourist. Oh, probably a want-to-be writer or whatever. And when I ordered my wine, he said that often we talk too fast and that he cannot understand. His French accent was a delight and he obviously was fluent in English, but I realized he was right. And so often in the anxiety of speaking in French or Italian or realizing there are limitations to what comes out, I have made the decision that I need to slow it down a little. And so my new friend comments again, but you, I can understand. Do you speak Italian? And I respond, not really, just a little. He says, do you like coffee? If you do, don't order it here. It is terrible. In fact, it is shit. I show you a better place for coffee. Don't drink it here. It's terrible. I am laughing at his use of the word shit, as I have never heard an Italian say it. The way he expressed it, this description made me laugh a lot. And so my new friend says, do you want to get a coffee? I'll take you around the corner to the best place. Do you drink espresso? And so we walk down the road onto Via Monte di Pieta to a pasticceria that is packed it is a sweet little cafe with wooden and glass cabinets full of traditional sweets and small bites and chocolates. 
He leans over the bar and swiftly orders two espressos and says, you like a dolce? I pick you one. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I cannot eat another thing. I just had three courses. But he insists, and I don't want to appear rude. I am enjoying this little moment. But fortunately, it is little, like piccolo dolce. And I smile when he hands me a small plate with a mandarin glaze dipped in chocolate, just like I had in Genoa from the historic confectionery shop. Perfect, I think. And I enjoy the rich dark chocolate and the nip of espresso standing at the counter. My new friend, Eugenio, pays for our coffees. And we walk outside and he says, I show you where the Piazza San Castello is. Under the colonnades, we wander to the end of the block. He points to the right to the railway and ahead to the Po River and a myriad of Piazza possibilities. He says, now be careful. You can talk to some, most Italians, but still you should be careful. He walked back to work and I continued on my way thinking about his American sounding English accent and laughing to myself. This is what I love about Italy. And again, a golden moment, just like in Padua. This happened not that long ago, a few weeks earlier, after I finished my dinner, eating alone and Diego, after his lunch, leans over and says, are you from Australia? (laughs) And I'm laughing. And he says, are you from Australia? And he gets talking to me, telling me he was from Calabria, which is not uncommon for us Australians to hear. So he orders two espressos and chats to me about Italy and Australia. I find it interesting that both of the men were sitting there drinking a glass of wine with their lunch. They both finished it off with an espresso and then back to work. And funny, both men are lawyers. Although Eugenio made me laugh, he said, In Australia, they don't get coffee. An espresso is very expensive. I laugh and I say, well, maybe it's because we're a cappuccino and flat white kind of culture. We just don't get it. I guess that's why we come to Italy, for the real stuff. But what makes me laugh even more is he was surprised because when he told me his name, he says, Oh, my name is Eugene. And I looked at him and I said, Oh, Eugenio. And he goes, How do you know that? And I said, Oh, it takes me back. Because once I was in Siena and I was eating my dinner and being commanded by a Tuscan who was serving the next course, telling me to hurry up and eat it. Just another time I'm getting commanded to do something in Italy. But anyway, that was another story when I was writing the In the Shadow of Your Cypress work. And so I walk along the cobbles and think it's so funny that I ended up in the cheapest restaurant in Torino, considering Piemonte is the optimum of gastronomic possibilities. And all I can think is, what a giggle. I meet people and I have a laugh. That is why it is not so bad to be traveling alone at times. Because when you are alone, something spontaneous always finds you and buys you a coffee. Somehow, Turin doesn't overtake, but embraces. It doesn't even feel like a city. After Milan's heady romance, I feel grounded in Turin, and I walk around the centro, admiring the open spaces, the eloquent golden details in the Piazza Castello, the palaces, the architecture, and the trams that float about the city. I decide to keep on walking, and after some more adventurous sightseeing, I find myself in Piazza Carinino, 
visiting the gelateria and cafe bar Peppino. Now Turin is known for a few things, chocolates, hazelnuts, truffles, diabolical aromatic wines, vermouth, and a little ice cream called the Penguino. They say it's the first ice cream covered in a chocolate and frozen on a stick. In the Gelateria Peppino, the ice cream cart still exists, as has the cafe since 1884. And so, at some stage late in the afternoon, I wander into a new piazza, lively with the locals sitting outside in a Baroque kind of heaven. The day is beautiful and I could comfortably sit outside, but I take myself indoors to enjoy the old world cafe mood. I'm obviously not in the state of mind for sweets, that I have covered, but considering something a little more mood altering and decide on a cocktail with vermouth. So go for it, the Negroni Storico, a mixture of Storico vermouth, Di Torino cocky, and Campari and gin. Before I know it, I am sipping a glass of red light that has that right combination of goodness. Only in more recent years have I taken to the Negroni. The first time I just found it too bitter for my palate, but after a fine cocktail at La Americano in the city of Canberra one night, I realized that perhaps when there is a bar and a menu and a mixer to generate the drink and a waiter of sorts to bring it over, it really can be something special. And this one is too. I have a small bowl of salty chips and a more than ample bowl of green olives that I can only just find the room for, but manage to spend an idle hour with my journal at the table in the Cafe Peppino. In the front of the menu I read, Peppino, the oldest gelateria in Europe since 1884. It's a shame I'm not going to sample the gelato, but that's okay. I have had more than a generous travel day. When I walk back outside, I pass the Ristorante del Gambio, where the Italian flag is flapping in the breeze, and I smile because it feels a little full circle when I realise that was the restaurant that Francis Mays was talking about in the book See You in the Piazza that I was reading on the way. I guess for me it'll have to be another time because I am on my way to the railway station. And so I wander back to the railway station, admiring the beautiful people in Turin, and I recall Cesare Pavese's quote from his diary, This Business of Living, quote, We do not remember days, we remember moments. End of quote.